Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. So last week we began our journey through Colossians, and in Colossians we talked about how the gospel and the reality of Christ opposes dualism. Dualism, we said, is this idea that we divide our lives into these two parts, one part for God and one part for myself. One part for spiritual things and one part for non-spiritual things. But we said that's really false. It's a lie because there is one creator and there is one creation. And even though he is completely other than us, he has created us for his purpose. And our life, all of our life, is for his glory and for his purpose. And so we cannot rightly think that we can live our life partly for God and partly for ourselves or partly for anything else. It is all for him, all the time. So I'm going to read to you verses 15 through 23. That's our text today, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his Son, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, dwelling in your people, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit in us, teach us, illuminate this word. God, transform us. May your word wash over our minds, and may our minds be renewed to your truth, that we would be a people. Lord, delivered from darkness, made light in the Lord, that we would in your grace and in your power walk as children of light to give glorious witness to you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, these verses reveal Christ in relation to God and to the creation. Verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
Christ is the exact, represent, the exact representation, the exact likeness of the invisible God. He is the very image of God. He's not just a superficial image, but Christ embodies the essential truth and divine nature of God in exact representation. In fact, Christ is called the God-man, the second person of the divine Godhead, three in one. Christ is both human and both divine. This is what it means to be the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews pins these words, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is the brightness of God's glory. And the understanding here is that Jesus Christ is the reflected brightness of the Father. But even more than that, Jesus is also the eternal generation of God's glory. In other words, he eternally generates the brightness of the glory of God. Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and he is also eternally or he also eternally generates the glory of God. Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory and the glory of God is known in and revealed through Jesus Christ. It is in the face of Jesus that we see the glory of God. He is the express image of his person. This is what Hebrews tells us, that the Son is the, ex the exact expression of his Father in every respect. Christ is the exact impress or stamp. The understanding here is how they would make coins, how they still make coins. They make a they make a stamp and they impress that image. Well, that's what Christ is. He is the exact impress or stamp of the divine nature and character of God. Thus, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, speaking of the God of this world who has, who has blinded the minds the minds whose minds the God of this age has blinded. That's what's happened to humankind in the fall. They have become blinded in sin. And the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. Here again, Paul uses this Phrase, the same phrase, the same word as in Colossians 1.15, that Christ is the image, the icon, the one who is the exact representation of God. Christ is the divine word made flesh that dwelt among us, and he ever dwells in us by grace through faith. In other words, Christ is God with us. Colossians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. 
all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. And that especially includes you. And I want you to understand this. I want you to know this. You were created for him. You were created by him. And you were created for him. You or anything else would not exist apart from him. In other words, you are not your own. And not only because God created you, but because you have been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus, purchased by his blood. You were created through him and for him, and you have been given this gift by his grace. Your very existence, your very life is the gift of grace from God. Colossians 1.17, and he is, Christ is before all things, and in him all things consist. So we've already learned that Jesus is the creator. All things were created by him and for him. Therefore, as the creator, he is before all things. And as the creator, in him all things consist. Or literally what that phrase says, in him all things are held together. All things were made through him. And as the Apostle John writes in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Christ is before all things because everything that was made was made through him. He is the eternal creator through which all things were made. This means Christ is not only before all things, he is preeminent in his relation to all things. As the world continually prophesies its own destruction and doom. Have you noticed that? There are a lot of prophets out there in the world. Inside the church and outside the church. Prophesying the world's destruction and the world's doom. Remember, as you hear their false prophecies... Remember that Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things were made, and in him all things are held together. Christ, not man, is master over creation and his created order. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 reveal Christ in relation to the church. So we just saw Christ in relation to God and creation. Paul goes on and he begins to write about Christ in relation to the church. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ is the head of his body, the church. You are the church. But you are not the church by yourself. The word translated church means an assembly of called out people. This word church, ecclesia, was used for the first time in the New Testament. It's recorded for the first time, spoken by Jesus in the Gospels. And Jesus said, 
I will build my church, my ecclesia. I will build my assembly of called out ones. That's what a church is. It's an assembly of called out ones. You can't have a church with one person. You can't have a church with less than, than one person. We think that because we are the church, and we are, and we're called the church, and we are in the scripture, but we're not the church by ourselves. We are the church as the assembled, gathered people of God who have been called out. Called out of what? Called out of this world. Called out of death. Called out of darkness. So you are part of the church, but the church is much more than one or even a few. The church is all of God's called out people on earth and in heaven. From the creation of man until Jesus one day returns. Again, this is why we confess each week that we believe in the holy Catholic church, the universal church. The church from Adam all the way until Jesus sets his foot back on this earth. The living and those who are alive in heaven. Those who are alive on earth. This is the church that we believe in. This is the church that we confess. This is the church that you are a part of. And one day the number of those chosen in him before the foundation of the world will finally be complete. But until that day there is much work to do. There are many disciples to be made, and there is a kingdom to advance. As his church, we are to be praying and working and living to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the life and the work of the church. The church meaning you personally and all of us corporately. This is the life and the work of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. That means he is the head of you, the head of me, and the head of all who are his body. The church is you and me and all who are joined to Christ Jesus by grace through faith. This is our, joy, this is our joyful life and necessary work under Christ, who is our head. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We must understand that Christ has no beginning. So there was never a time when Christ did not eternally exist. That's what eternal means, without beginning, without end. So Christ, in that sense, had no beginning he is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead. Christ, the Word made flesh, was crucified, He died, and was buried. There was a time when Christ did not have flesh. He was made incarnate. He took on human flesh. He was born and had a beginning in that sense as a flesh and blood being, a human being who was also a divine being, he was the word made flesh, crucified in the flesh, died and buried in the flesh, and on the third day he was raised again from the dead in the flesh. Christ is the beginning of those born from the dead. Christ is the first fruits, 
the firstborn of those resurrected from the dead to life by the Spirit of God. He is the beginning of those who would follow him in being born from the dead. And if you are in Christ, you will one day follow him or your body will. If it is ever laid in the ground, it will one day be raised up from mortality to immortality. And that is true because Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And if you are in Christ, then you will follow him. In Christ, you have the promise of a future bodily resurrection because Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of this promise. And there is a world of people who will follow him. Christ is our head leading the exodus from death to eternal life in him. The gospel that we are commanded to make known is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And you are to live his gospel loud and clear for all to see and for all to hear. That in all things Christ may have the preeminence. That word preeminence means first, not in chronology or not in birth order, but in position or rank. Christ holds the first rank, the first position. So think about it. Jacob was not born first, but he was given preeminence over Esau. Or think of David, who was born last among all of his brothers, but he was given preeminence over all of his brothers to become king. So though David was born last, he was first. He had preeminence because he was anointed the king. Jesus, the last Adam, is given preeminence over the first Adam or the first man. Christ has preeminence over all things. And we may put many things before Christ in our life, but in reality, there is nothing that ranks before him. We must, we must ever remember and we must ever live accordingly that Christ has the preeminence, knowing that in all things, Christ has that rank, that position, that preeminence. And your life is to reflect that in all things. In everything we do, in all things, Christ is to be preeminent. Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. In Christ all the fullness dwells. This fullness is, a, is an interesting word. It is the culmination of all divine power and all the divine attributes gathered together in one place in Christ. Now, we might not realize this, but in the Colossian church, there was a heresy called Gnosticism. It was a very common belief among the Greeks. And when Paul is writing this in the in the 60 AD, around that time, Paul is writing this in a world that has been Hellenized. 
In other words, it, it was a Greek culture, even though the Romans ruled it. And there was this Gnosticism, this belief that only the spiritual mattered. What you did in the flesh didn't matter. That's why the Gnostics could care less if Jesus was resurrected bodily, because the body meant nothing. In fact, it was disappointing to them. That's why the, the philosophers on Mars Hill, when Paul preaches to them and he begins to mention that Christ was resurrected bodily, they, they shut him down. They said, nah, you lost us there. Well, this idea of Gnosticism, this word fullness was a technical term that expressed the sum total of the divine attributes and power, but the Gnostics believed that that divine power and those divine attributes were stretched out over the ages and certain people and certain things, there would be a manifestation of this divine power and these divine attributes. We see it very clearly in the New Age movement. We see it very clearly in cults and false religions who even confess to be Christian, who say, well, Christ is, uh, Christ only received, Jesus only received the Christ consciousness or the Christ anointing. He was one of many who can receive this Christ anointing. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. That's not gospel. That's not good news. And Paul very purposefully here takes this term, fullness, and he says, for it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. He took what the Gnostics diluted and spread out, and Paul concentrates it and puts it in its proper place. He gathers it together to refute this false teaching, this dualistic teaching, if you will, that we live in a flesh and blood body, but it's only our spirit that counts. Now listen, in Christ, your flesh and blood body counts. What you do in this body counts, and you're going to receive a, a brand new flesh and blood body, and you're going to live eternally in flesh and blood. It's just going to not have any sin. It's not going to have any death. Amen. It's going to do amazing things. It's never going to wear out. That's good news. I don't know if it is for you, but it is for me. Amen. And Paul is refuting this, this pagan belief that we still fall prey to today when he says that it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. This is the grand climax of all the previous statements concerning Christ Paul makes here in his letter to the Colossians. His relation to creation, his relation to the church, his preeminence in all things. The Father is implied in the language of this verse, and it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. And there is nothing lacking in Christ. He is the complete and full expression of divine life and power and majesty. In him all the fullness dwells. And if Paul's statement that he is the image, the express stamp, the express image of the invisible God, if that wasn't a, dec a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, then this right here absolutely is. That in Christ, the fullness dwells. 
In Christ, nothing is lacking. There is the full and complete expression of divine life, divine power, and divine majesty. For in him, all the fullness dwells. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, And by him, by, by, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let me read that in context, verse 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should, should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And by him, that is by the Father, to reconcile all things to himself. The Father reconciled all things to himself by Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of, the, of his cross, the cross of Christ. The blood of his cross has made peace, has brought reconciliation, and the Father has done this. He has reconciled all things to himself by Christ. It pleased the Father to reconcile all things to himself by Christ. This reconciliation touches all things on earth and in heaven and has come by making peace through the blood of the cross. Now in Christ we have peace with God by grace through faith. This is the relation of Christ to his church. And in that relationship in Christ, you are able to come to the Father not only are you reconciled to God, but he has now committed to you the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Paul writes, now all things are of God. I'm going to back up and just quote verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, Old, the old has passed away, all things have become new. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You are an ambassador, a messenger, obediently delivering the message of the king, who is imploring through you that men be reconciled to God. Reconciliation with God comes only through Jesus Christ. We're the messengers. He's the Savior. So you're only delivering the message. You have no power to save anyone. You have no power to deliver anyone. But you have a message, the gospel, that is the absolute power of God to save men and to deliver them from death and from sin. Men must be reconciled to God. Because sin has alienated them and made them enemies. 
Man cannot reconcile himself. In Christ alone, our hope is found, as the song goes. The good news is that reconciliation comes through Christ, and if men will call upon his name, they will be saved. Call upon him, trust in him, and be reconciled to God. That is the message of the gospel. That because of what Christ has done, because he is that image, because he is that living Savior, the very expression, the very fullness of God's divine power and glory, he alone can save. And if we call upon his name, his promise is that he will save us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, reveal Christ in relation to our reconciliation to God. So it is by Christ, it is in Christ that we are reconciled to God. It is by Christ and it is in Christ that we can come to the Father. Verse 21, Colossians 1, 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. He has reconciled. When you were alienated from God, when you were his enemy, you could not reconcile yourself. God alone was able to reconcile you, and he reconciled you to himself by Christ, by the blood of the cross. The scripture teaches that the wages of sin is death. It also reminds us that sin is pleasurable for a season, but in the end it brings forth death. It is when men experience the consequence of sin and rebellion that they often turn to God. So even in turning to God, it's not man reconciling himself to God. So when I turn to the Lord in my sin and I cried out to, to God, to save me, it wasn't me reconciling myself with God. When I turned to the Lord and cried out to Him, it was God reconciling me to Himself. Though, though men may cry a river of tears, worldly sorrow cannot save us. We see this very often with our children. We warn our children. And our children don't heed our warnings. And when they realize they're getting ready to experience the consequence of their sin, the tears come and the repentance comes. And the Bible calls that worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow doesn't save us. Worldly sorrow comes from me. Godly sorrow, true repentance, is God reconciling himself. Reconciling you to himself. It's God granting you the repentance necessary. And it may include worldly sorrow, but it is the godly sorrow. It is the true repentance for your sin that is the measure of your true salvation. Because men are sorry about their sins while they're suffering the consequence. But if you haven't ever noticed, because I'm guilty of this myself. When the consequence seems to be passed and everything's back to normal, we kind of go back to our default mode. But if we have truly been changed, if we have truly been transformed by the power of God, we're not going to revert back to our old ways because the old has passed away and behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God. 
And when God reconciles us, God puts his spirit in us and makes us a new creation. And it's out of that new creation that we now live and that you renew your mind. And as you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, know that it is God working in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the work of God's grace. Your reconciliation from God is brought to you by Jesus Christ. It is brought to you by the blood of his cross. And so is the transforming work of his Spirit in you. The work of sanctification, of being set apart for God's service, the work of being conformed more and more closely to the image of Christ is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it is a work of grace. He has, he has reconciled, you are reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. He has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Let me read both of these verses together in context. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Yet now he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. Christ lived in the flesh and Christ died in the flesh. Christ walked sinlessly in the flesh so that he could offer himself up as the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And it is the sinless life of Christ in the flesh that has made it possible for you to be reconciled in the body of his flesh. And Christ died in the flesh and was raised in the flesh and ascended in a flesh and blood body to the Father. Yes, it was glorified, but make no mistake, it's exactly why he ate fish with his disciples. It's exactly why he told Thomas, poke your hands in the holes in my hands. Put your hand in my side and see if I am not the risen, the resurrected Christ. And Thomas falls down and he says, my Lord, my God. That reconciliation in the body of his flesh was accomplished to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I want you to catch this. God reconciled you to himself through the life of Jesus in the flesh, through his death in the flesh, through his resurrection in the flesh, through the blood of the cross, so that he could present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. His grace is eternally working on your behalf for his glory. In his grace, he created you and all things from nothing, not out of need, but out of love. In his grace, when you are alienated from him and his enemy, he reconciled you to himself, making peace. In his grace, he willingly offered up his sinless life for you even though you willfully offered up yourself to sin. In his grace, Christ offered himself as sacrifice for sin so that he could present you to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This is the grace of God given to us 
in Jesus Christ. This is God's work of salvation for the world. This is God's work of salvation for you and for me. You are saved by His grace through faith. Your faith in Christ, even your faith, is His gift of grace. In grace, He gives you a new heart. And from that heart, He commands you to love Him with all of it. Even your love, even your love from Him, or I should say it this way, His love poured out into your heart is a work of His grace. We love Him because He first loved us, 1 John 4.19. Knowing His grace and power, you are to obey His command to go and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. That great commission is to be carried out from generation to generation to generation until He comes again. This is what Jesus commands his disciples to do. This is the faith of the church. This is the faith that brought us to 2022. You do realize that, don't you? Thank God in his grace there were men and women who took the commission seriously and believed that their children and their children's children and their children's children's children would be preaching the gospel world without end until the knowledge of His glory filled the earth and covered it as the waters covered the sea. This is what Jesus commands us to do from generation to generation, teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. This is what Jesus commands His disciples to do. This is the faith of the church. This is the life of the church. This is to be lived out every day in every way in all of life. This is the faith you are to live by in all of your life, in your God-given vocation, and in whatever your hands find to do in the moment. Whether you're a butcher, a baker, a mover, or a shaker, an entrepreneur, or a mover of manure, we have those two, right? A stay-at-home mom or a mower of lawns, your vocation does not matter, but how you live your vocation absolutely matters. How you live and do all things in life matters. You are to do all is unto the Lord, and all you do is a witness to Him to his grace, and to his glory. The Puritan writer and theologian William Perkins said this, the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as is the action of a judge in giving sentence, or a magistrate in ruling, or a minister in preaching. All you do, whatever it is, matters, and as good a work before God as any other. Strive to be the best in all you do. Do all with excellence, not for your glory, but for His glory. All you do and all you are, great or small, gives witness to Him and to His grace, because it is by His grace that you are able to do anything. And it is to His glory. You matter because God created you and gifted you with life for His glory. Our last verse, Colossians 1.23, gives instruction and warning. Both are for our good. 
Both are for our safety. Both are for our salvation. Both provide needed information and give us assurance with peace as we follow his instruction and heed his warning. Paul writes, we will be presented holy and blameless and without reproach in his sight, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Colossians 1.23 is instructing us how to live in order to have assurance of our salvation, not how to earn our salvation. I want you to mark that distinction very clearly. Colossians 1.23 is not telling you how to earn your salvation, not even telling you how to keep your salvation. It's telling you how to be assured of your salvation and know that you will one day be presented holy and blameless and without reproach in his sight. At the same time, it warns us what will happen if we do not. In other words, we won't be presented holy and blameless in his sight if we do not do these things. We are reformed in our faith and our practice, which means we believe salvation is by God's grace and by his grace alone, and that the perseverance of the saints is by God's power and by God's power alone. You do not save yourself, and ultimately you do not keep yourself in your salvation. That is the work of Christ, who is called the author and the finisher, or the beginner and the completer of our faith. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, he writes these words, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's no uncertainty or ambiguity there. Your faith was begun by Christ. It will be made complete by Christ. He began the work in you. He will complete the work in you. This is a hope-filled promise, a sure promise made certain because he gave up the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If you belong to Jesus, you can rest assured that Jesus will present you to the Father, holy and blameless. Christ saves God's elect to the uttermost. He does not lose a single one. The question is not losing your salvation. The question is knowing your salvation. When we look across the landscape of humanity, what does a Christian look like? How tall are they? How short are they? What color is their hair? What color is their skin? How old are they? What country do they come from? Can you tell a Christian simply by physical appearance? Well, the answer, of course, is no. You can't. And thankfully, God provided much diversity in humanity and in the body of Christ. And the question of knowing one's salvation is not based on physical appearance. A Christian may look many different ways, but they are to live in only one way. How can you know a tree for certain? Well, Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. How can you know a Christian? You know a Christian the same way. You will know them by their fruit. 
Not all God's elect are the same physically and outwardly, but all his elect are being conformed to the same image spiritually and inwardly. All of his elect have Christ as their life, and Christ is to be made manifest by the work of the Spirit. So ultimately, all who are Christ's, all who belong to Christ, will manifest his life. And that's how we will tell the difference. We will know them by the fruit of the Spirit manifest in their life. It will look like you continuing in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not being moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. In fact, you will continue to avail yourself to hearing and reading and studying the gospel in his word, and you will continue to place your hope in Christ. And this is especially true when you fall into sin and under conviction. When you get up from your fall, you will continue on in the faith, grounded and steadfast. You will continue moving forward in him by his grace, pressing toward the goal of the high calling in Christ. By his grace, you will keep growing up into him in all things. What does the Christianity of the elect look like? It looks like a child born by God's grace, nurtured and raised up in the fear of the Lord, growing and maturing with ups and downs, but eventually growing up into the fullness of the stature of a full-grown human being, or spiritually speaking, growing up into the fullness and the stature of Jesus Christ. It looks like a life bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Some seasons will be more fruitful than others, but always the life of Christ in the believer will bear the fruit of Christ and His Spirit. You may not see the elect of God by outward appearance. You may not see them in a moment or a snapshot of their life. But over time, they will be unmistakable as they grow from tiny seed. They will grow and flourish and become strong and mighty in Him. They will grow to benefit all who find shelter under their shade. Their life will produce fruit, and it will be evident to all who taste and see. They will see, they will weather the storms of life as God works through both the bitter and the sweet to make them ever fruitful and enduring. Don't despise the hardness of life and the hard times of life because they are building in you, producing in you a more eternal weight of glory, the scripture teaches us. The Lord did not save you to lose you. He saved you, the scripture teaches, to present you blameless in his sight. Those who do not continue in the faith, those who never become grounded and steadfast, those who are moved away from the hope of the gospel, which they heard, those are not the elect of God. Those were not chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Those benefit from the grace of God, but they have not received the saving grace, the most important aspect of his grace, the aspect of his grace that saves them, that translates them from darkness to light, from death to life. Instead, these are those who have no root, who may have an appearance of godliness, but there is no power, for Christ is not their life. These are those who may even do things in the name of the Lord, as Jesus tells us, as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 7. 
They may even do things in the name of the Lord, but in that day the Lord will say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. It is not enough for us to believe that we know Jesus. We must know that Jesus knows us. As you continue in the faith, as you are more grounded and steadfast, as you are moved closer to the hope of the gospel, as you grow in your love for him, you can be assured that you are known by him. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know this because it is his grace that chose you, it is his grace that saves you, and it is his grace that grows you and matures you. And in his grace, he seals you and keeps you safe and secure in Christ, ready to be presented holy and blameless and beyond reproach in the Father's sight. Praise God for his grace made known to us in his gospel and in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel, which was preached to every creature under heaven, as Paul declares here in this letter, and is to be preached still today to every creature. And it is to be preached by all who are his, by all who are known by him. And if that is you, and I pray that it is, then make his gospel known in word, in deed, live it loud and clear for all to see and for all to hear. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the Lord's table. If you count yourself a member of the body of Christ, a member of his covenant people, as you are trusting in Jesus, as your covenant children have been initiated through baptism into this covenant family, you and they are welcome to this table. Whether this congregation in particular is your church home, if you are part of the Holy Catholic, the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to his table, for this is his table. And he has invited us and made a way for us to come because he has redeemed us by the blood of his cross. And through his flesh nailed to that cross and his blood shed from that cross, we have been redeemed and we are made reconciled to God. Christian, welcome to the Lord's table. Welcome to Jesus. We will all be served and we will all eat and drink together. I'm going to give you your charge and then uh, we'll sing the doxology. Then I'm going to pray for the food next door. You're all invited to stay uh, in fellowship together and break bread together. And... Uh, Bless our missionaries and bless one another through our fellowship and our food. In our charge today, I want to remind you that we should never take our salvation for granted. And that means a lot, not just how I think about my salvation, whether I'm going to heaven or not. When I say we should never take our salvation for granted, I, I want you to think about the price that was paid for you to have your salvation. I want you to think about Jesus laying down the glory of heaven. Jesus, the
the sinless Son of God who never knew sin. The Scripture says that He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The Bible charges us to make our calling and election sure. And that charge is not to question your salvation. That charge is to be assured of your salvation. So as you do the things that Paul instructed us, that we could read as a warning of things not to do, it is a charge for us to do these things. And in doing them, we will always know and be assured of our salvation that we continue in the faith, that we be grounded and steadfast, that we move forward, that we press onward toward the goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus, placing our hand to the plow and never looking back. That we do this knowing that Christ redeemed us and reconciled us to the Father by the blood of the cross, so that he could present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach in his sight. Jesus did not lay down the glory of heaven and become sin for us so that we would have a chance for salvation. He did it so that we would have the certainty of our salvation. And as those known by Christ we should also know how we have been saved and that we are saved and live our lives accordingly as a witness to his grace and glory. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.